Hi, this is Cynthia Lett. Before there was a modern civility on Blog Talk Radio, there was It's Apropos, and this is one of my favorite episodes. Hello, this is Cynthia Lett, director of the Lett Group and host of It's Apropos. Today, we are very pleased to have as our special guest, Gary Wiederspahn, who is the Director of Intercultural Business Solutions. Gary has designed, developed, and delivered a broad range of cross-cultural programs for multinational companies. In addition, he's written over 50 articles, designed training materials, and produced videos related to intercultural training. He's been a consultant to numerous international governments and private sector projects. He's a presentation developer, he's a trainer, and he's a speaker on intercultural topics at both business and professional organization conferences. He has been working for 14 years as an expatriate manager overseas, and he currently resides in Geneva, Switzerland. During most of the time, he was country director responsible for the morale and productivity of up to 120 expatriates from the U.S. Gary, hello. Good morning, Cynthia. How are you today? I'm doing great. We're so glad to have you here with us because today we're going to talk about some very important subjects. Some of them have been covered in your new book that's coming out called Global Intercultural Services, a Buyer's Guide and Source Book. It's published by Gulf Publishing, and you can reach them at www.gulfpub.com slash book, B-O-O-K, slash M-C-D, and that will take you to the Multicultural Differences section of Gulf Publishing. What a terrific project, Gary. It's been a very long project, frankly. I've been gathering these ideas and thoughts for all of my um, adult uh, life and professional career, and I thought now that I've reached a point uh, where I'm thinking of uh, slowing down and retiring, I wanted to give some of this uh, insight back to the field and back to the clients. Terrific. It sounds like it's going to be a very easy book to use as well. Well, I certainly hope so. I'm giving it a very practical, pragmatic, uh, how-to sort of focus. It's not academic-y at all. Oh, so very accessible to the general user. The idea of the book, if we're talking about the book now, is to uh, empower the buyers and the users. Up to this point, the practitioners, the providers, the the vendors have had the upper hand because there's not a great deal of uh, sophistication or knowledge uh, in the intercultural field on the part of the people who are actually buying those services. So I thought as my sort of parting gift to my profession is to give the inside uh, uh, perspective to the buyers and equal you know, uh, balance the playing field a little bit between the two. I think more sophisticated consumers of intercultural services will be more demanding of quality and get more bang for their buck when they actually buy intercultural services. That's the idea. I think that sounds like a great project. Today I want to talk about a few things that are really important when we're dealing interculturally. And one of the most important, I think, and I'm sure you agree with me, is the concept of time. What do you think? Uh, yes, that's one. Of the, well, 
going back a little bit in, in time, uh, when I first went uh, overseas uh, or to another country, it was 1958, if you can believe that. Wow. And one of the first things that impressed me uh, and, and confused and puzzled me was how different uh, different cultures uh, experience time, actually think about time and use time. And to give you a simple little example, I was in Colombia for one of my earlier assignments abroad. My wife and I prepared a nice little dinner party, invited some guests, and nobody came. Oh, no. And uh, after about an hour and a half, we thought, gee whiz, wow, what a shame. They might have not gotten the invitations or the date was wrong or something. And so we sat down, had dinner, cleaning up, and the people started coming in. And An hour and a half later? hour and a half later, and with friends that we hadn't invited. Oh, no. Terribly embarrassing, and that's, I found out later that uh, in Colombia and in most of Latin America, you don't want to uh, expect people to come at the official time. Social time can run anywhere to up to two hours late without people feeling like they're late. So if the dinner invitation is at 8 p.m., you can't necessarily expect them until 9.30 or 10 o'clock. That's exactly right. Well, that's awfully good to know, especially if you're doing the cooking. All right. Also, it's useful to know if you're the naive business traveler and you get invited to someone's home, you show up on time, you're likely to find the uh, employee or the uh, business counterpart still at the office, uh, his spouse probably taking a shower, and the maid won't know what to do with you, and you'll sit there and cause a... <laughs> international incident without even trying. That seems to work um, as a rule of thumb in Latin America and South America. What is the concept of social entertaining timing, say, in Asia? Uh, Asia is a little... I think you have to distinguish between different countries. All right, let's do that. Let's talk about Japan. Well, Japan, uh, things are um, more punctual than Latin America. And, and, and Japan is kind of interesting at a business meeting, for example, you would start uh, pretty close to the time that's officially scheduled, but as people warm up more slowly there, especially using English, right. they will um, get into the subject matter that you're discussing gradually and may just be reaching their peak about the time that the meeting is officially scheduled to end. And so, so what's the best way to handle that? Well, that one is to be open to continuing for another half hour or even an additional hour if necessary by planning for that in your schedule. That allows you to let them, in their role of um, host, really, you're in their country, uh, to determine when they're satisfied with the amount of business that has occurred. Now, usually, one meeting alone will not do it. They need time, speaking of time again, to take in this information, to consult with a wide variety of people at different levels in their own company, go through a consensus building and uh, education process internally in their organization, and then get back to you subsequently uh, with their answers, their decisions, and so on. So it could take weeks. It could take even months before a decision is made. That must be awfully disconcerting for Americans who are used to having decisions made right then and there, isn't it? Exactly. Very frustrating, and it can be very awkward, too. We uh, tend to um, make decisions quickly at the top. 
the typical picture would be there would be general guidelines from a very senior level, a few um, consultations with legal and technical and, you know, staff level people, and then the decision is made. Right. And the rest of the uh, time, time is used in our corporations after that point to get people on board, to work out kinks, technical kinks, uh, get, get people to understand what their roles and functions are in supporting that decision. We do all that after the decision. The Japanese do that before. So often we're out of sync with the Japanese on a project. Which is more efficient in your mind? Oh, I think it just depends on what context you're in. Our system is efficient here because everybody functions that way. In Japan, their system is highly efficient because that's how other Japanese companies would function. And so uh, we would typically, these, these cross-cultural time issues uh, can be very serious. We, we would be already moving down the road trying to get the decision uh, out of the Japanese and they would be not understanding why we would have to still work out things that they'd taken care of long ago. And isn't it true that when you're working with the Japanese as an American company, that establishing, taking the time to establish the relationship is even more important and that the decisions come from that relationship and how strong it is and how much trust has been built into it, and that it's in itself takes time. It definitely does take time. Um, and a lot of time is what we would consider off, offline time. I spent many, many, many hours uh, in restaurants, uh, karaoke bars, singing, embarrassing <laughs> myself with, uh, with my colleagues, uh, showing that type of vulnerability and becoming a member of a group takes a lot of sake and beer and sushi. And time. And time. Uh, that's true in China, since we're still in Asia. Asia yes, here. let's talk about China. Well, there's a concept called guanxi. How do you G- spell that? G-U-A-N-I-Z-I, pronounced guanxi. Okay. And it basically refers to how well-connected, how well-wired you are into their networks. It is a... Um, one of the major sources of success within their system. It's actually, actually, it's who you know, not what you know in that sense, right? Pre- precisely. Right. And who you know, uh, not, it's not only the uh, high-level people, but sometimes mid-level and very low-level people can be door openers or solve problems for you. So it is the breadth and depth of your contacts that give you this thing called guanchi. And, of course, that takes time. A lot of banquets, a lot of toasts, uh, a lot of uh, multiple uh, communications at different levels on the uh, off channel, you know, on official. Yet they do count. Now, how is entertaining at home or um, outside of the office handled as far as the time? Do we have the same concept um, that the South Americans do that it's okay to be late? In the United States, I see. No, co- no, no, no. no I'm talking about in China. In China. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese, my experience with them is that they would expect us to be punctual. Uh, if there's a senior level person, a gov- high government official, that, that person may not uh, arrive exactly on time because that would be a signal of how important this person is, that his time is so precious and in demand by others that um, it's a little indirect signal of status. 
that's been my, I'm sorry, that's been my experience, my experience as well. The higher up you are and the more revered, the less time you have to spend with the other people. Right. <laughs> you, you can come in late and you can leave early. Yeah. Well, by contrast, you know, we are, in the United States, very time-driven people. I saw a survey recently called the Hilton Time Survey, over a 1,000 adults. 62% of Americans surveyed felt lost and confused without their watches. How <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that way? <laughs> I do sometimes, yeah. 20, 29, 30, you know, 29% felt half-dressed or naked if they didn't have a watch on. I always feel like I'm on vacation if my watch isn't with me. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, we, we are programmed right from the beginning of our nation, even before, uh, to be very uh, time-driven sort of people. Benjamin Franklin, in his uh, book that had a tremendous influence on our culture, uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, I right. think it was in 1733, right. he said things like, Lost time is never found again, and time is money, right? We've all heard that one. And even when we were visited in the 1830s by uh, um, a French sociologist, he was impressed the fact that Americans had an exaggerated estimate of the value of time, and we were always in terrible hurry. So it's nothing new, but we've really sped up, haven't we, in the recent years because of time-saving devices, right? Technology. Technology. It's supposed to like give us more time to do things we enjoy, but what it really does is just gives us more time to do more things. Exactly. And so we never really do have that time that we're trying to save from this technology. That's really true. It's what a, there's a fascinating book about that, by the way, Cynthia, called Time Lock by Ralph Keyes, and it looks at how we sped up over the years and why and what it's doing to us. Uh, our attention span is being broken down into smaller and smaller units. You think of how short ads, political ads even, and other ads and uh, are, are becoming smaller and smaller in terms of amount of time we have to give to attention, attention to things. And we then go to some place like the Middle East where people are thinking in very, very long term, um, probably, uh, probably tens of decades, probably, maybe more, and we're focusing on, you know, next quarter's results. Tell me a little bit about um, your experience with time in dealing with the Arab countries. Well, I found they're similar to uh, Latin America and Asia. That relationship is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And to establish that, uh, there is a lot of uh, hospitality given to a foreign business person there. And if you respond appropriately and sensitively to all their uh, little uh, taboos and do's and don'ts and so on that take place in that environment, the relationship builds and grows. But they, they have something that the anthropologists call uh, polychronic time. Have you heard that expression? No, I haven't. Tell me about it. Well, there's a contrast between monochronic time, which is our system and Western Europe. Uh, it's a, Time is linear. It's a straight line, and it proceeds from now until then. And it's broken up by... Uh, events that one leads A leads to B to C and D and so on. So it's sequential and it's linear, called monochronic, one sort of time. In Throughout the Middle East, not just in Arab countries, you will find polychronic time. That's where it seems that time is operating on several channels simultaneously for them. So you can be in an office and the phone will ring and the person will 
pick up the phone, and if it's somebody that that person has a relationship, they will spend some time dealing with that, come back to you. Uh, an assistant will walk in, and there will be some papers to sign. Uh, there may be other people, actually, in this office who you don't know who they are, why they're there, and they simply may be um, some other relative or friend that this person plans to do something with later, or it may be uh, someone whose advice this person that you're dealing with uh, values and respects and wants them to hear the meeting. I see. And so there's this concept of uh, switching different between these different uh, levels or uh, channels of time, and they don't lose their place. They, they, since the, that's the environment they were raised in originally, small children, right. they can go from B to C to D to F to G and back and sort of keep track of what's going on on each of those channels. It sort of drives us crazy sometimes because we're so used to coming in, settling down, focusing on uh, one stream of events and lead to an end. Tell me about, um, I think that's great. It's, it's good to know about that and the way that they are doing business in that polytronic time. Um, but we've got another part of the world, Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, how are they different than the United States as far as their time? Well, let's take Scandinavia. Okay. In contrast to Latin America, it couldn't be greater. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you're invited to a dinner party, you will pull up in front of the home maybe five minutes before the uh, official hour. You will notice that, yes, <laughs> and all the other people who were invited also are parked there ready to walk in. At the stroke of eight or whatever the time is, people get out of their cars and walk in shoulder to shoulder. Sounds like a bad movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, you know, we have to get rid of the idea that we're the most punctual people in the world. That is incredibly punctual, but that's not necessarily the case in, say, France. Well, France, now time is interesting there uh, in several respects. One is that it's very difficult to get anything done in August in France because vacations are long, sacred. And the use of time um, is such that, well, Scandinavia, throughout most of Europe is that way. Personal time versus business time. Personal time is very revered. And they don't allow their personal time, their vacation time, to interfere. Whereas we will, as Americans, will actually take our laptop computers and our telephones on vacation with us, and there's hardly a blur between the two times. Exactly. And uh, they really make a strong distinction in that regard. Uh, The Swedes, I think, get up to eight weeks of vacation a year. So there will be blocks of time when you can't locate them, and they don't want to change their vacations in order to meet your business schedules. So that'll be interesting. And I know in Germany uh, and in Switzerland, punctuality is absolute. <laughs> you have to be there when you say you're going to be there, or you're, uh, the amount of respect that you want to command is no longer available to you. Exactly. I've come, you know, I'm living in Switzerland now, and it's very apparent to me why these people invented clocks in I the first place. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> there had to be a good reason for this, and that is it. Hey, speaking of clocks, yes. there was an interesting little study done by uh, Robert Levine, who is a psychologist. He studied the accuracy of clocks in banks, 
in different countries to get an idea of how important punctuality or accuracy is. And where did he do the study? Uh, he did this study, I think, in 87, 85. But I think it still kind of shows a relative difference. For example, Japan was number one in accuracy. U.S. was two. England was four. Uh, Italy was five. And Indonesia was sixth on the list. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, the uh, Indonesian clocks were more than four minutes off the mark. Well, as we talked about before, that part of the world is not quite as punctual in that time. You can get a sense of people's time if you pay attention to their proverbs and sayings. That's interesting. Can you you give me an example? In Spain, they have a saying, uh, those who rush arrive first at the grave. In other words, if you're in a big hurry, all you're going to do is end up dead sooner rather than later. That's interesting. Nigeria says, um, Nigerians say that the clock did not invent man, that we should not be driven by our clocks, but we should be in command of time. Well, I happen to agree with the Nigerians on that. The clock did not invent man. Ethiopians, now see if you can understand this one. If you wait long enough, even an egg will walk. Um... No, that one baffles me. Well, if you wait long enough, the egg will hatch, the little chick will get up and walk. Oh, of course. And so the idea is patience, take it easy. That's marvelous. Do you find that in Africa you find a lot of that um, mindset? Yes, I spent some time in in, uh, South Africa about six months recently and dealing with the different uh, tribal groups. I found that to be very much um, kind of almost a rural... Time, time for them seem to depend more on season and time of uh, day, sunset, sunrise, those kinds of things, than digital time as we were, you know, we are accustomed to. So there's a much slower pace and more relaxed attitude about time in general, I would say, throughout Africa. Um, in France, getting back to your question about Franks, France, uh, they have a saying, before the time, it is not yet time. After the time, it is too late. So the idea is you'll have to help things along and mature to a certain point. Then you must take actions and not delay. Interesting. Time Who do good. you think, uh, what country others would be closest to the way the United States figures time? Are there any, any countries that stand out as being very similar? Well, I would say most of Western Northern Europe, Northwestern Europe, let's put it that way, sort of excluding um, Spain, Portugal, uh, southern Italy. Is that because they do business with Americans so often and they have adjusted to the way that we do business or the way, or have we adjusted to the way they do business? or Is there a correlation there? I think it is just a matter of each country having its own cultural roots, and part of that has to do with how time is used and how it's experienced. And if you happen to be similar in that respect, then there will be a very small gap between you and them. You know what I find um, is that history, the amount of history a country has had, seems to influence how they view time. America's only 200 and some odd years old, and we have done so much and come so far in such a short period of time that we feel that we need to rush it to keep on the same momentum. 
whereas other countries, particularly Europe and Asia and, and the uh, Arab countries that have a long and, and rich history and things have evolved over time, are not as quite as concerned as ta- with time as we are. Do you see that to be true? Oh, exactly. In one of these interminable long evening dinners and uh, drinking sessions in Tokyo, after I'd been there about five times, uh, I'd gotten to the level of confidentiality with my Japanese counterparts, and they were saying, listen, Gary-san, you know, we have 2,000 years of history. You have 200 years of history. That's 10 to 1 ratio we're talking about here. Right. And we tend to view things that long. And I said, well, hey, Give, give me an idea here. What is short-term for you in terms of your business? And then they had a long conversation in Japanese, and then they came back and said to me in English, five years. And I said, short-term? And he said, oh, yes, yes. That's very short-term. So to answer your question, absolutely. So the the whole concept of relationships and how it uh, affects time and, and vice versa is very important. We'll talk about that in another time together. Um, right now, I'd, I'd, we are out of time, <laughs> and I want to thank Gary Wiederspahn of the Intercultural Business Solutions for being our guest today and for a great conversation about the importance of time and how it's viewed interculturally and how uh, we all do business in that time and how we need to understand what time means in other countries so that we're not out of sync with our cohorts. Gary, uh, how would we reach you if we wanted more information? I think the easiest way for most people, since I travel and um, live in different places, uh, would be at my website. And people there could either uh, obtain my mailing address or send me an email by clicking on the contact uh, button. Can you give us what that is, please? Well, www dot o m n as in omni o m n dot com single slash forward and then my last name w e d e r s as in sam p as in peter a h n as in nancy terrific and when you get there you'll find not only some more information about gary but also about the services that he provides uh, companies, small and large, and about more about his expertise. Also, I have quite a few links to other uh, websites that are of use and interest to people doing business internationally. Terrific. I'm sure that will be very valuable to our listeners. Thank you so much, Gary, and I look forward to talking with you again. Very good, Cynthia. My pleasure.